baby seated. I absolutely love that song. That is probably one of my favorite songs, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I love how the song starts out where it talks about Christ at his first coming. His first coming, it was very humble. He came. There was no pomp and circumstance in the world as far as But he was born in a manger. There was no room for him in the end. He lived a very humble life. He was poor on this earth, and he was treated terrible while he was on this earth. And ultimately, it ended up leading to him to Calvary, where he died being mocked, being shamed, being spit on. But folks, that's not how he's coming back. When he comes back, it is going to be completely different. He's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming with eyes as a flame of fire, and he's coming, and he's going to shed not his blood, but the blood of his enemies. And so that song, it just really, it draws a great picture, I think, of just the differences in the two comings. But here's the thing. As Christians right now, we are kind of, in a sense, physically speaking, practically speaking, literally speaking, you know, we are nothing in this world. In fact, we're hated by this world because of our connection to Jesus Christ. We're looked down on. We're hated. And ultimately, it's going to lead to, and it already is in many places, it's going to lead to persecution. It's going to lead to Christians being killed and being martyred. But folks, that's not the way it ends for us. And because we know these things as Christians, we live victorious right now. We live victorious right now, not thinking about Christ's first coming, but thinking about his second coming, how it's going to be when he comes back. And here in chapter 4, we have the most famous rapture passage and I think it's important before we get into that, that we think about the fact that this church that Paul is writing to telling them about the coming of Jesus Christ is a church that's hated. It's a church that is being persecuted. It's a church that's going through tribulation. They're in the bad things, kind of like Jesus was when he was on this earth, but good things are coming. And, you know, we ought to live victorious as though it's already happened. We ought to live not ashamed of being Christians. We shouldn't be ashamed when we're persecuted because we know how this thing's going to end. Yes, we get ridiculed now. Yes, people say they lie about us. They say all the terrible things they do. We have even fake Christians that talk about us like we're terrible. We have fake Christians who side with the homos against churches like ours that say the same junk against churches like ours. They, they mock our preaching. And you know what? The world is on their side. These trendies out there that want to trash us, make fun of us, the world is on their side. The numbers are on their side. But let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ comes back, their blood's going to be being shed with the homos. They're going to go down with them. And you know what? Whenever I get just feeling like we are outnumbered, overwhelmed, maybe even losing a little bit. I think about that song. And that song, it gets me through a lot because we know how this thing is going to end. And we win. We win. So you know what? Let them brag right now. Let them run their mouth right now. Doesn't that make the fall so much better? We all, we all hate that guy that's showing off when he's about to score a touchdown. But isn't it fantastic when all of a sudden somebody out of nowhere comes and tackles them when they weren't expecting it? Then it becomes the most satisfying thing you've ever seen. And just understand, while these clowns out there are running their mouths and talking big, just showboating, showing off, 
One of these days, Jesus is going to come back and he is going to knock their socks off and it's only going to make it more satisfying for us. So I don't like that attitude. Well, I do, and it makes me feel good, and I'm looking forward to it. And I believe it's going to happen. So you know what? Let them run their mouth. But let's go ahead and start going through verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the coming of our Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you, by the Lord Jesus. Now, a very common and yet ignorant and just flat out stupid statement that I see a lot, I see this come across Twitter a lot in the trendy world, is they will say, this is from the crowd that turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. They make this statement that his presence or God's presence is not based on your performance. That's what they tell us all the time. Because, you know, they hate it if some of us maybe think that we're right with God because we're being obedient and we also dare to think they're not for not being obedient. And they so they say these things that sound really good, like we're all about Jesus. And his presence, it's not about your performance, it's about the performance of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, when it comes to our salvation, it's all about the performance of Jesus Christ. But after we get saved, after we get saved, if we want... God to bless, if we want to please God, if we want to be obedient to him, there's certain things we're supposed to do. And so he told them here, he's, he's exhorting them by the Lord Jesus, that as he have received of us, he's saying, I want you to do the things that we told you to do about how you should walk and to please God. Did you know there's some things you need to do in order to please God? Okay, now listen, don't listen to the guys in their skinny britches and their floppy haircuts and their hipster beards tell you about pleasing God. They don't know. They know how to please the crowd. They know how to please the community as they gay up the gospel. They know how to do all that, but you know, and they'll tell you there's nothing you can do to please God. Then what was Paul talking about right here? What was he talking about? And then notice he said, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. These commandments, do these things have anything to do with salvation? Of course not. He's not telling them how to get saved. These people are saved. He's telling them how to walk and to please God. And it sounds like in order to do that, they need to follow the commandments that he told them to follow. So that kind of flies in the face right there. And I know, listen, if we want to have a, just a liberal church, if we want to have all the music that the world likes and your dirty flesh likes, if you want to come to a church where you don't have to feel bad no matter how rotten you've been living during the week, you know, then that stuff is going to sound wonderful to you. But some of us here are trying to follow the word of God, and we're looking and saying, I don't know how that works. And not just the word of God, but the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't let us behave like animals. So I don't know what they're going to do with a, with a passage like this, but they're going to keep saying stuff like his presence is not based on your performance. And they're going to, you know, and everybody's going to pat themselves in the back. Wow, you're so wise. You're so deep. No, you're full of baloney. You're dead wrong. And you don't please God. And you're disgusting. You're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Okay. And there is, there's a movement that's always been around that promotes worldliness and sin in the life of a Christian. And so when you start talking about saved people living a certain way, they start accusing you of denying 
verses about how we are sanctified by Christ and how it has nothing to do with our works. But the, and we agree with that. Okay, we would agree, we agree with that. It's like, but wait a minute. As Christians, shouldn't I live a certain way? Oh, it's all about the gospel. And doesn't that sound so good? It's, everything's about the gospel. How you live your life is all about the gospel. It's just it's, it's all gospel. Gospel. We're a gospel-centered church, meaning we only talk about the gospel. We never get any deeper than that. We don't do like they did in Hebrews where we go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance of dead works and faith toward God. We don't do that. We just stay right there and we don't change anything. I'm sorry. I don't believe that's what God wants. But said it works if you're just stinking carnal. Their mistake is that they reject clear teaching that after salvation, it is God's will for us to sanctify ourselves and to live our life for him. Okay. Now, here's the thing. When you get saved, Christ sanctifies you, meaning he sets you apart. He has made you holy. You belong to him. But just because Christ sanctifies us, that doesn't mean that's the only sanctification there is to do. Okay. For example, you know, God loves us, doesn't he? But does that now mean, you know, we can't love anybody else or they can't love back or anything like that? I mean, yeah, God loves you. I love you too. Well, that doesn't matter. It's only God's love that counts. Well, I get it. His is more important than mine. But just because God does something doesn't mean I can't do something too, does it? And the sanctifying that God does Okay, he has, he's made us holy, he set us apart, but we should also, in our bodies, the best we can, sanctify ourselves. Meaning, we're going to set ourselves apart, and we're going to dedicate our lives to Christ. We're going to do what we can to please God with our lives. And look what it says in verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Well, I thought that was already done. Yes, for salvation, that was done. But in God has preserved us. He's going to keep us. But God wants you now as a Christian so you can be effective as a Christian. So you can please God. God wants you to sanctify yourself. So not so you can still go to heaven. So you can please him. And notice what he very specifically says. That ye should abstain from fornication. Did you know fornication does not please God? It makes him mad. It doesn't take your salvation away, but it upsets God very much. God hates say, uh, God hates fornication. And Paul, uh, in the Bible, it gives all kinds of examples of how God hates fornication. In the New Testament, it refers to the thousands that God killed in the Old Testament because of fornication. And, you know, Pastor Hipster, he wants to get up. And, you, know, it's all, you know, that was the God of the Old Testament. He's not like that anymore. Well, then why did Paul warn New Testament Christians about what God did to them in the Old Testament? You know why? Because God still hates that stuff. God still hates fornication. God hates wickedness and perversion. And God is going to deal with it. God is going to punish for those things. So, they're ignoring this, and it says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You're supposed to do something with that sanctification that you have. Okay, You could say in many ways that there, there are things that we sanctify in this church. You know, our piano that we have right here, this is our church piano. We use this. For worshiping the Lord with our music. You know what I don't want anybody doing with this piano? This is, we shouldn't go honky tonking on this piano and just playing, even if it's not a church service. Well, we're not having church right now. I don't care. 
This is our church piano. This is our church auditorium or sanctuary, as many people call it. And we want to reserve it for godly things. We don't want to be thinking about the dance party we had here the night before. Well, it's just a building. I get it. I, I get it. It's just a building. But at the same time, it's special, isn't it? And so we're going to uh, show some respect. And there are certain things we're not going to do. And it should be the same way with our vessel, with our body. Because God has saved us and he's made us holy through Jesus Christ, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sanctify ourselves and we're not going to give ourselves over to these things of the flesh and to these things of the world because we belong to God. We've been bought with a price and so we're going to glorify God in our bodies like we've been commanded to do. And when we do that, that pleases God. And so it says in verse 5, says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. That concupiscence, just it's that just desire for things that we shouldn't have. The Gentiles, they just go for whatever they feel like going for. You know, whatever they're interested in, that's what they go for. Whether it be fornication, whether it be drunkenness, whether it be whatever it is. I mean, you, I mean, you know what it is in our country today. The things everybody's going for, the things of the world, the money. The pleasures, just all this junk, things that are not godly, things that are not bringing people closer to God. I've never seen anybody getting closer to God after they started drinking alcohol. Never seen it. Never seen anybody get closer to God if they started smoking pot. And it, it just has never happened. Oh, are you saying, though, you know, you're more holy because you don't do those things? I'm saying I'm possessing my vessel in sanctification and honor. I'm saying that doing that pleases God. So, I mean, I'm not trying to act like I'm more saved than you are, but I am being obedient and you're not. And, you know, I, I'm not going to do what you're doing. I, I, I don't believe that is right. And I'm not going to act like the Gentiles that just do whatever they feel like doing. We all feel like doing things we shouldn't do sometimes. And you know what we do? We sanctify ourselves and say, no, I belong to Christ. I can't do that. I can't go there. This body belongs to God. I'm not going to go to that place. I'm not going to participate in this sin. And he says in verse 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as also as we also have forewarned you and testified. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was super nice and never lets any bad things happen to anybody because he just loves us too much because of Jesus. Right here, he's warning them about defrauding other people because you know what? God's an avenger. He's going to avenge people. He's going to make things right, and you're going to be in trouble. It sounds like God still doesn't like sin very much. That's Nothing's changed there. And so in previous chapters... It's been talking about God's wrath, too, that's coming for the Jews who are persecuting God's people. And so we, we know that God's wrath is coming on the lost. We know God's wrath is coming for the Jews. We've been seeing that throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians. But it's like some people have this attitude, just because you're saved, you're going to go do all the same stuff, and God's not going to be, be upset with you at all. I think in some ways God's more upset with us because we ought to know better. He's not going to throw us into hell, but he will deal with us as children. I'm more mad at my children than when they do certain things than when other people's kids 
do certain things. I've been places before, and I'll hear other people's kids start using foul language, and that doesn't make me very happy, but I would be a lot more upset if it was my kids that did it because they know better. They've been taught different, and that's the way God is with us. God doesn't like us acting like a bunch of heathen, like the Gentiles. It's, it's naming a group of people, saying you're not supposed to be like the Gentiles. How dare you have that judgmental attitude? I mean, Paul said it under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He said, don't be like the Gentiles in the lust of concupiscence. And, you know, and everybody knows we're not supposed to be like the world, but what's funny is nobody ever wants to define that. Nobody ever wants to give a practical illustration, you know, uh, of what that looks like today. Nobody wants, nobody wants to do that because then they get, you know, somebody mad at him for judging. But that's just absolutely ridiculous. Verse 7 says, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus Christ made me clean. So what's he worried about right here? I get it. When it comes to our standing with God, we are clean. When we stand before him one day, we will have the, we will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what's going to get us into heaven. But here we are on this earth right now. God doesn't want us living like animals. God doesn't want us living an unclean life. He wants us possessing our vessel in sanctification and honor. He wants us living holy. These are commandments. You know, and so you know, what is that holiness? You know, and like he said in verse one, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. He's wanting them to follow those commandments and the things that they had taught him. And so in verse eight, says, he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. People who do not like preaching against sin. People who get mad at preachers that preach against sin. They don't despise the man. They despise God. He's the one. It's God that came up with these things. It's God that's given us these commandments. It's God that's given us the Holy Spirit that tells us we shouldn't do these things. And yet people, they get so bent out of shape today when you start preaching against sin. They just absolutely lose their mind. You start talking about holiness. And again, they go to verses about salvation. They never, they've never been able to understand that, wait, after salvation, we're moving on and we're talking about different things. We are on a different subject here. Because you did. You got to remember, you had a people back then. You had the Jews who, because of their religious performance, didn't think they needed Jesus Christ. And we've got that down, folks. We all have got it down and figured out that we are 100% dependent on the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We get that. Okay? And, but, that but the thing is, we're not supposed to take that knowledge and then use it as an excuse to do evil. We're not supposed to do evil that grace may abound. God forbid that we would do something like that. But after we're saved as a church, now we're trying to get our life together. We're trying to be effective as Christians. We're trying to please God in our life right now. And so we do that by abstaining from sins, by doing good works. And we're going to constantly affirm these things. We're going to constantly teach these things and encourage you to do work. The grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
That's what the that's what the grace teaches me. Grace is teaching these clowns that it's all good. You know, whatever, just be however you want, do whatever you want. I mean, you're fine and you're still okay. That is absolutely false. And people do. They try to act like I just don't like this preacher, but their problem is with God. Uh, that, that's and I'm not listen. There's there's some Baptist preachers out there that are knuckleheads that I think it's possible to not like them and still love God. I think it's even possible to not like me and still love God. But at the end of the day, what you know, I don't know about like hating because again, hating your brother that's another thing. But just you can just not really care for somebody. But what is it that when, when when I'm triggering people, preaching the truth and preaching on holiness, when that's what's triggering you, I don't think your problem's with me. If it's just about my mannerisms or maybe some of the things I say or some terminology, if that's all that's making you hate me, then maybe it's just me. But if it's because I'm preaching against sin, I think you got a problem with God. And I wouldn't be so... Uh, full of myself and arrogance to think that you do hate me. I don't think I'm worth hating personally. I really, I really, I'm not so full of myself that I just see myself as somebody that evil people just want to hate. I don't. I think they hate God and they hate the message and that's their issue. But verse nine says, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. It is the most instinctive thing for a Christian to love his brethren. And it is the most unnatural thing for a Christian to hate his brother. In fact, if you go to 1 John, somebody that hates their brother, somebody who claims to be of Christ, somebody who claims to be and is just hating them, you wonder about that person. And it is. It is something that Paul said, I don't even need to write this if we've got to like twist your arm and encourage you and threaten to kick you out of the church to just get you to like people in the church, chances are there's something wrong with you. There, you need you. I, I shouldn't have to tell you these things, you know. And Paul said, "You have no need that I write into you." Now he could have been saying that too because they were doing a good job. But at the same time, I think the real reason is just because it wasn't necessary. God teaches you to do this. God teaches you to love one another. So it is most natural thing. In the world. And, and it is. It's the most unnatural thing to hate another Christian. And this is why people constantly want to take everybody's salvation away. This is why everybody knows how to just magically make everything a salvation issue. This is why people are so quick to, there's just a disagreement on anything and they go, he that is of God heareth God's word. I just saw one today for somebody just, they, they did the verse, the natural, I, I know why they don't understand this. The natural man receiveth not the things of God. Okay, that's talking about just spiritual things. The natural man doesn't understand spiritual things. Your poor presentation of a passage of Scripture might not be understood by a saved person. Your error that you are teaching in doctrine might not be understood by a saved person. Okay, so folks, that is just dumb. You know why people do that? Because they love to hate. There's something wrong with people who love to hate, especially Christians. There's something wrong with you. What are you saying, Pastor Tommy? I don't know what I'm saying. I'm saying you're something's something's messed up. You got something seriously wrong going. I mean, I, have, you, have you ever talked to somebody before and you just knew something's up with this person? They're not all there. They're crazy. 
They start acting weird. They start saying weird things or saying things that just don't make a lot of sense. Told you about the guy in the detention home I talked to one time that looked completely normal. He would look you right in the face, completely sane looking, and he would just start saying sentences that didn't make any sense at all. And I remember just thinking, is he messing with me? I knew something was wrong. And I remember I talked to the workers there after he left. I almost threw him out because I thought he was messing with me. But he looked so sincere. And I asked him, I said, was something wrong with that kid? He didn't look completely normal. And they said he's all messed up from drugs. But he looked completely normal. But it was obvious something was very wrong. I wasn't a medical doctor. I haven't studied his brain, but I could tell something was wrong. You know what? I can't see the heart. I can't see the spirit. Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes people just start doing things that don't make sense. And when people start doing things that don't make sense, there's a reason for it. There's something seriously wrong. And one of the weirdest things in the world is when a Christian is hating another Christian. And I think people know that. And that's why they do these weird things that take away people's salvation. I'm sorry, man. You're just freaking me out. There's something really weird and twisted here. And... I don't like it. So verse 10. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. So they were loving their brethren. They're loving these ones in Macedonia. He's just telling them, you know what? Keep doing that. You know, when somebody's doing something right, especially a new Christian, you know, don't just always be trying to correct everything that's wrong with them, especially a new Christian. Make sure you're letting them know when they're doing something right. And just encouraging them to do it more. Because, you know, some of us, we do better when we're encouraged for what we're doing good. Because often it's hard even just to do the things that we are doing. And when everybody's just criticizing and nitpicking the one little thing we get wrong, it just makes us want to quit on everything. But when we're, when people are encouraging us for what we're doing right, it makes us want to do more that's right. And again, I, I do believe that this was a young group of Christians. And so Paul is telling them, He's like, hey, you're doing good right here. Keep doing that. You know what? In fact, do more of that because this is this is good stuff here. He's encouraging them. And then he goes on to say, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. And if we are being loving, if we are doing right, we won't have to live it. We won't have to hang our heads in fear. We're not going to be ashamed of what we're doing. If we're minding our own business, if we're doing work, if we're laboring like we've been called to do, we can have confidence that we're doing the right thing and we can be bold in our approach and in our life. And so the rest of now, so now on the rest of this passage that we're seeing, this is the most popular rapture passage in all the world. And so the big question we need to ask here is in verse 13, so after he's been saying all these things. Now, nothing in here has been about the rapture, has it? Nothing in here has been about the rapture. And I, it's important, since we're going to the main rapture passage, that we understand the context and what brought him to this and got him talking about it to make sure we're understanding right so people can't just come along and make verses mean whatever they want them to mean. Okay? And we, we, don't, we don't want to do that. So notice in verse 13, he says, but I would not have you be ignorant. Okay, what is, you know, what are we seeing here? Okay, because this means this coming thought, it ties in with the previous thought. So let's forget about using this passage for a moment to prove pre, mid, post-trib 
and anything like you know anything like that because that's what most people do with this. You know, if I want to preach a post-trip message, I can go here. It's a rapture passage, and then I can get up, talk for why everybody else is wrong. Pre-trips can do the same thing. I've heard them do it. But why why is Paul bringing this up? This is very important. What is he trying to prove? And so to understand what we're tying into, we've got to look at the end of chapter 3. Now look at what it says at the very end of chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the previous chapter, it ended with Paul wanting to see them unblameable in holiness before God at his coming with all his saints. And so when chapter 4 starts off, he's telling them how to please God. He's telling them you how to, you please God by living holy lives. Because what are we doing? We want to make sure we're ready to meet Christ when he returns. So that's why all of a sudden we see a reference to the rapture here because he had just been telling them how he wants them to be ready when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus Christ comes back, he wants them to be there unblameable in holiness. And so he's been telling us in the first part of 1 Thessalonians 4, how to do that. He's been telling them, you know, how to live holy lives, how to please God. He started out in chapter 3 talking about loving the brethren, and he goes on in chapter 4 talking about loving the brethren too. It's a very important thing. And then when he gets to verse 13, let's go ahead and start reading this now. Verse 13, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So what Paul's doing here, he's letting them know that those who didn't make it to the coming of Christ will still be there for the coming of Christ. And folks, this is a comforting thought because I want to be there for that. I want to I want to see the rapture. I want to, I want to be here for that event. I want to see everybody's faces when the sun is darkened and the moon is turned to blood. I want to see everyone's faces when all of a sudden, not when they look and I just vanish in front of their faces like we uh, we talked about uh, we were talking about this morning. That is not in the Bible. Bible says we are changed in a moment twinkling of an eye. I want to see their face when, I, when I'm changed. I'm hoping some, if I'm dead, I'm hoping somebody's at the cemetery when it happens and they see me come out of my grave. It's my goal to get martyred right at the end before the rapture. So when I do my famous last words, you can kill me, but you can't keep me dead. They can see that happen when my head rolls off. And then all of a sudden it gets reattached again and I get up and I light up. I told you so. And then, <laughs> Folks, you know how awesome that would be? I'm telling you, that's my goal. You see me get my head cut off in the tribulation. Do not feel sorry for me. Do not feel sorry for me. That's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm ready for it. And either way, either way you spin it, even if I just do something really lame, like just drop dead with a heart attack or just get, you know, run over my car or something like that, I'm still going to be there for it. I'm glad. 
What have we been talking? What's Paul been talking about? He's been talking about being in the presence of the Lord at his coming. And he's letting these people know that those who didn't make it, they're still going to be there too. And that's good news for them because you're going to be there too. Because we're not going to prevent them which are asleep. Ultimately, this is not about the timing of the rapture. This is about the fact that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. This is about the fact that those who have gone on before us are going to be with us when this great event of Christ's return happens. Because we've been seeing references throughout this book about the return of Christ. People are supposed to be ready for the return of Christ. And said, if, if you die before it comes, that stinks. But Paul, unless you find out that actually, you know what, you're going to still be there for it because the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Before the rest of us are getting caught up, you're going to come out of the grave. You're going to, you're going to rise from the dead. And so verse 16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This makes it sound like when Jesus comes back, it's going to be loud. We have him shouting. We have a trumpet blasting. And I don't think this is going to be like a dog whistle thing where only saved people can hear it. I believe, behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. That's what I, that's what I believe. Now, that doesn't fit with your pre-trib doctrine, your pre-trib theology. That doesn't go along with the Thief in the Night movie from the 70s. It doesn't go along with all the pre-trib books, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. We are going to see him at his coming. We are going to behold him. And we are going to, when we see him, we are going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope purifieth himself, even as pure. We are looking forward to that day. We are looking for the coming of Christ just as much as any preacher ever is. Okay. Now, you know, they're looking for it in a way where they're just thinking it's going to come on them and they're not going to, you know, when they're not expecting it. We're looking even more because we're expecting something. You know, we're expecting to see some things, and we're I'm excited about it. You better believe I'm looking for the coming of Christ. It says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let me just, again, I've been talking a lot about proof texting because I hate it. It irritates the snot out of me the way people will just... Take a verse, take a phrase, isolate it, ignore context, and talk about whatever they want to teach, whatever trash doctrine they want to teach. And, I mean, I've literally listened to people get up, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Paul's comforting with the fact they won't have to go through tribulation. And when you realize what they've been talking about the whole book, and to hear somebody say that, you say either ignorant, ignoramus, or liar. Because these people have been going through tribulation. They're dealing with tribulation. Why would he comfort them with something like that? That's not, that, that wouldn't have made sense. These people would have been thinking, you know, what in the world? We're supposed to avoid tribulation? You know, maybe that's where they get their horrible teaching too in 2 Thessalonians, when they teach when it says, um, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. That you be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled, nor by spirit, nor by letter as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. And then they try to teach that they were saying they, that early church believed that they there were people saying they missed the rapture. What? Okay, that does that doesn't even make sense. Now, where that comes from is other versions say that the day of the Lord has already come. 
Now, that's not what that passage says, but they're talking like this church thought that maybe they missed the rapture, which makes no sense, absolutely no sense at all. But I guess if you believe some secret dog whistle rapture where just people vanish, but they didn't see anybody vanish. Like none of these, none of these things happen. The, you know, the things people come up with to just stick to that pre-trip, it's just like, listen, just give up on the lie. Just give it up. Hey, your argument's dead. It's fallen apart. It's been completely dismantled. Yeah, maybe there's one or two things that us post-tribbers we struggle describing that have nothing to do with, nothing that helps pre-trib at all. You know, I'm not going to act like I understand everything about eschatology, but I know when you're going to 1 Thessalonians 4 and using it to prove a pre-trib rapture, you're crazy. It's just, it's not there. There's nothing, there's nothing to help you do it, but yet they try. They'll people say, you know, they'll go, um, the verse where it says that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together uh, you know, with them in the clouds. Meet the Lord, so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, they'll, so they, they go through all that right there and just, you know, they describe, they'll, they'll read the verse, but then they describe their event or the, the, a scene from a movie that's not from the Bible. And then they just act like this is proving the point. It's like, wait a minute. The order of events you gave me, you didn't show me that in the Bible. You described the movie. You know, this, this, you know, this little, uh, storyline you went down where you're talking about planes crashing and all the empty cars and clothes sitting there with no bodies in them and, you know, my dad throwing his baby up in the air and all of a sudden the baby never comes down except the clothes, all that kind of stuff. You didn't show me that in the scriptures, but, the thing is, they they get away with it like they did because they'll read this scripture right here, caught up. Right there. You still see that? Caught up. And that's why he's going to throw that baby up in the air. Baby's going to keep going. <laughs> the clothes are coming back down. Well, that sounds pretty cool. But again, it doesn't say vanish in the twinkling of an eye. It says change in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know how long that's going to take. You know, I don't know how long we're going to go from changed to caught up. I don't, I don't know how long that's going to take. Maybe it'll be a split second. But either way, if we start shining like the brightness of a firmament or something like that, at least you'd see the, them turn into a ball of light and shoot up in the sky. It is, you know, these things, they, they don't work. You know, they, they're from movies, but they'll just go. And literally, this can be the only passage that they go to. And yet they've told a left-behind story and they acted like his Bible preaching. It really is, it really is astounding. And you know, throughout this letter, Paul's been comforting them with the thought of Jesus returning for them. And so ultimately what this chapter is about, it's about being ready for Christ's return, meaning we need to be living holy, separated, sanctified lives. That's what it means to be ready for Christ's return. He's wanting us, or he's wanting to comfort them, not with the fact that they will not be here for tribulation. Because they were currently in tribulation. He was comforting them with the fact that those who were dead would also be present at Christ's coming. This will be the biggest event in history. And I'm comforted that even if I don't live to that event, I will be present for that event. I will partake in this event. And so something I want to do briefly, though, is note how all the references to Christ's coming in this letter this is important before we get into next week. 
all the references in this letter so far to Christ's coming, they have been, they are references to our rapture. It's important you understand that too. Okay? And we've got to accept this whether certain statements help our cause or not. Okay? Because those who have, uh, are suffering from severe ructardation, they will try to tell us that there's multiple comings mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. But let's look at a few things here. They'll say 1 Thessalonians 3, where Christ is coming with the saints, they'll say that that's Armageddon. Okay? I'm going to show you. That is completely false. There is no doubt 1 Thessalonians 3.13, it's talking about our rapture. It's the same event that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you isolate that verse and ignore context, then you can make it fit with what we see in Armageddon. Because at Armageddon, do we not see Jesus Christ coming with the saints? I'll admit it. Jesus Christ is coming with the saints at Armageddon. I'll admit that. Well, but at the same time, I can tell you 100% that First Thessalonians, that the coming of Christ with the saints is in First Thessalonians 4 also. Okay? So all that, doesn't that kind of hurt? You know, doesn't that make it look kind of like it could be a post-wrath rapture? And I still don't think it is, but at the same time, that makes more sense than a pre-trip rapture. But let me just show you that the, the coming of Christ we're talking about here, it is all the same event. So 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, that doesn't tell us anything about timing, except we're delivered from the wrath that is that is to come. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, at his coming, Paul has a desire for these people in, Thessal in Thessalonica that they be in the presence of the Lord at his coming. Ver chapter 3, verse 13, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, here's the thing. If our hearts need to be unblameable at the coming of Christ with all his saints, and that's a reference to Armageddon, then shouldn't we be all taken care of by then if a pre-trib's right? Because we got pre-trib raptured. We've been up in heaven for seven years. We've already stood before the judgment seat of Christ. We've already got our glorified body. We're coming down with Jesus Christ. And now we got to have our hearts ready for that? That doesn't make any sense, does it? This is something we're supposed to be ready for. Therefore, this is, this is talking about the rapture when Jesus is coming with his saints. But you know what? So don't let the dispensationalists make that to be a reference to Armageddon. There is no possible honest way to do this because we showed already that chapter 3 and chapter 4 tie together. When he gets to chapter 4, verse 13, which is where everyone wants to start, he says, but it's tying in to the thought that we've had before. And it's been talking about being ready for Christ at his coming, and you say, well, I don't know if that's the coming with his saints. This is the coming for his saints, but then later he's coming with his saints. Okay, but wait a minute. Look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All right, you're going to tell me that Jesus isn't coming with his saints in 1 Thessalonians 4? Somebody tell me that. Please tell me that because I'm going to insult you. I'm going to prove you so wrong. I dare somebody to tell me that right now. Oh, look, what he, look what it says in... 
verse um, 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Uh, those aren't the saints. Uh, listen, I'm sorry you're desperate and you're just saying dumb stuff now that I got you backed into a corner. But folks, if flat out right here in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's talking about Jesus Christ bringing some people with him. Who are they? The saints. Who are they? The dead in Christ. Who are they? Those that they were worried about that were asleep. That's who it was. So when Jesus Christ returns, yes, at the rapture, he's coming with his saints. There's no two ways around that. I do still believe that there is a difference between the rapture and Armageddon. But at the same time, I'm not going to be dishonest with the scriptures. And I'm not going to say Jesus Christ coming with his saints in, in the, or he comes for his saints in the rapture and with his saints at Armageddon. No, it says he's coming with his saints in 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay, there's, there's no doubt about that. And we don't need to butcher the scriptures to do that. He goes on to say that we, those of us among the living, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them. With who? The ones who came with Jesus. Caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with them when that happens. There's no doubt. Okay, I don't care how you spin it. Every prophecy book you read, every chart that you have, every one of these preachers is going to all get up and sound real smart and tell you about there's a difference. you got to learn to rightly divide between Christ coming for his saints and Christ coming with his saints. Hey, he's coming with his saints at the rapture. Just get over it, buddy. There's no two ways about it. If you know how to read, you don't have to have a degree to figure this out. You just have to read the whole thing, not just isolate passages. So understand everything we have been seeing from chapters 1 through 4, everything has been about the rapture. The coming of Christ with the saints, it's all been about the rapture. And I want you to keep that in mind because when we get next week into chapter 5, we see the day of the Lord mentioned. Now, I believe that's when the rapture comes. Right? The dispensationalists, they've made that about Armageddon. And they try to separate it. No, that's Christ coming with his saints at the day of the Lord. Well, okay, I agree. Christ is coming with his saints at the day of the Lord. I just also believe that's what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 4. But they want to separate this and make it another event. And we've got to ask ourselves, is there any way, honest way to do that with the text when everything we have seen has clearly been talking about the same event? And all of a sudden now, because you don't like that term because it doesn't fit your chart, that all of a sudden now you're going to make this a whole new event. Shouldn't there be something in the scriptures, something in this letter to indicate that? I would like for them to show me what it is. And folks, this is why you don't see a lot of this type of preaching in the IFB world. Because if you do an honest expository type message where you go through the entire passage and you preach through entire books, it exposes too many areas where you're wrong. And let me tell you something. Every time I preach through a book in the Bible, I learn about verses that I wasn't interpreting exactly right. But you know what? 
When that happens, I want, I want to know so I can fix it. These people, they refuse to fix anything. And this, this is, uh, this pre-trib teaching, it's just proving more and more to just be a big, big, ugly mess. And, you know, it's, it's easy to make mistakes. Bible prophecy is tough. It, you know, there, there's some things that are very difficult to get a hold of. It is really hard to figure out and to understand how Christ coming with his saints in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not what we're reading about in Revelation 19 where Christ is coming with his saints. I mean, and especially, too, when we see throughout 1 Thessalonians, we have Jesus coming with his saints and coming to bring wrath. And then you say, that's not Revelation 19. You know, what do we do with that? I don't know. You know what? Maybe we're wrong in some areas. I don't think so. But I'll tell you right now, the pre-tribbers aren't even close. They're, they're so far out there, it's not even funny. No consistency whatsoever. And, you know, and I'm hoping uh, in a couple of weeks to kind of pre- uh, preach a message clearing all that stuff up. But I'm, you know, I'll, I'll admit some of this stuff's hard. I'm become, the more I study prophecy, the more gracious I am with people who have different views on eschatology, except for pre-tribbers. I, you know, I, I've probably become more gracious with just about every group except for them because it's like, what are you people thinking? I expect so much more from them, and then they give us that, and I'm just like, oh. you know, and and there are worse heresies even in eschatology. You know, there's some pretty bad heresies out there when it comes to preterism and things like that. But but even then, I see how I see, you know, when you look at Matthew 24, I can see why you'd think that for Matthew 24. I can see why you think that maybe from that one passage in, in, in Revelation. Here, you know, so I see where you're wrong on that chapter. Here's with, 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 the, with the pre-trivers. I can't see where you would ever come up with that. <laughs> I don't, honestly, I don't know. I have no idea what would make you interpret that passage that way. You know, but that's what they do. And it's frustrating. We just got to pray that, you know, I continue being gracious, even though the more I learn, the more it takes. And I was there at one time, and so that's what I got to remind myself of. But but either way, uh, we do want to be ready for the coming of Christ. We are looking for the coming of Christ. People try to differentiate between the rapture. This is another thing that theologians do. You ought to understand the difference between the rapture and the second advent or the second coming. It called it the coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4. You're going to say that's not the second coming? I'm sorry, the rapture is the second coming. I hate to break it to you. That's that's the second coming. It, it flat out says it. And this is what I love about 1 Thessalonians 4 and just proving how stupid all this stuff is. Just from 1 Thessalonians 4 is everyone pre-mid post-trip, everyone agrees 1 Thessalonians 4 is the rapture. Everyone, everyone agrees with that. And so when you see it referred to as the coming of Christ and his coming with his saints, that ought to have you sweating bullets if you still hang on to that doctrine. And so, anyway, with that, let's go ahead and close the word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word and uh, just the clarity of it. And I pray you'll help us to uh, learn from this passage and help us to be ready for your return, Lord. I pray when you come back, you'll find us living sanctified, holy lives, being obedient to your commandments. I pray you'll find us uh, loving our brothers, not uh, not hating on our brothers, not trying to 
find a, a loophole to take away their salvation somewhere, Lord, but you'll help us to uh, just be uh, studying, to be quiet, to do our own business, and to work with our own hands. And I pray you'll uh, help us to, to be ready when that day comes. In your name we pray. Amen.